Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder and partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories. I'm here with Will Hodling. Uh, you can know someone for years and not know how to say the last name. Uh, and Karen Nortman from Upfront. Guys, welcome to the prestigious Venture Stories podcast. Excited. Thank Excited. you for having us. Kara coming all the way from LA to, to be here. Will, co-founder and CEO of Strive, please tell us what Strive is. Absolutely. Strive Talent is a competency-based hiring platform for middle skills jobs. Uh, so we help companies hire candidates based on their abilities and potential rather than on their credentials and prestige. Doing so helps companies hire better people faster and gives candidates a fair shot at the great careers they desire and deserve. Cool. Now, Kara, you are the lead investor of Strive. I know that you've been thinking a lot about future of work, future of education. Can you briefly sort of outline what your thesis is in the space and where Strive fits into that thesis? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd say high level, we're always looking for, you know, founders are really authentic to what they're doing trying to solve big problems that are technology-led. And this area is one where you both can um, drive mission and capitalistic returns, which is uh, which is great. And so we've spent the last few years looking at what I now call competency-based hiring, what a couple of years ago we might have called um, new forms of education. And, you know, we looked at, we've looked at a lot of different approaches to it. And many of them, there are many different ways to do this, but Strive was really going after a portion of the market that very few other companies were going after. So sales and intrinsically motivated categories that you could measure and doing it in a way where the burden didn't sit with the potential employee and they weren't taking a lot of risk, but actually sat with the employer. So there was a lot of elegance to the approach, the opportunity that was sort of different than a lot of the companies we've seen that have been um, heavily tech oriented. Cool. So sorry, on even, even the most highest level, competency-based learning is probably a subsector of future of work. Can you sort of map out how you think about the future of work because you know people throw it around in, in various different contexts. Yeah, like the future of work in a lot of ways could be like the future of everything, right? Right, <laughs> and 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 probably before the industrial revolution, we didn't have the concept of play. So right. work create, you know, <laughs> yeah. industrial revolution created we can create a play. But I, you know, I kind of think of it like very simply as in two buckets. Um, you know, I kind of think of it in, in, from a Maslow's hierarchy framework in the sense that you have the first bucket, which is just kind of survival, right? So food, shelter, safety, and and in this case family supporting income and how do you get to that level and so competency-based learning fits there there are a bunch of other types of themes or trends that fit around kind of that and near-term opportunities and then you know the next bucket is a little bit broader but it's it's um you know all the other stuff that we think that we get from work purpose respect creativity friendship and that can fall into a whole lot of different buckets from like actual benefits to, uh, you know, benefits being like healthcare and, right. and um, paying off student debt and things of that nature to a lot of the things that we used to get from work that we don't get from work anymore, which is community and, you know, kind of education and re-education and those sorts of things. So I put them in the kind of those two buckets. And have you made an investment in the, in the second bucket? 
I mean, we've invested, we have invested in a number of marketplace businesses that are aggregating supply and demand. So, you know, companies like Hopskip Drive that is sort of taking heavily female childcare professionals and connecting them with families that are looking for transportation for their kids. And there's community on the driver's side and community, you know, kind of on the parent side. But it's the stuff that I'm looking at more proactively right now is newer. It's sort of, I think we were kind of invented this category in a way and they right. did it around real estate and now they're trying to jump into, you know, kind of like what are all of the other like educational modules and all of these sorts of things within real estate. But I think there are like a lot of companies that are not, that are coming at it without real estate that are looking at, you know, how do I bring educational modules or training modules into the home? How do I yep. create safe spaces or new spaces for flexible careers for women, for things of this nature, all the way to, you know, how do I, create healthcare plans that aren't the ACA and aren't employer driven that are direct to consumer and have a lot more transparency to them. So that's probably the newer area and I haven't done as much there. Cool. Well, let's get into why you started Strive. I mean, before this you were working on Minerva for what, four years? Uh, three years. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, focus on the intersection of like, you know, the future of high, higher education, you know, obviously you could have done a lot of things at the intersection of the future of education, the future of work, why strive and how has that sort of idea evolved over time? So, yeah, so the, so the goal of Nerva was to create a top tier university from scratch. Uh, we wanted to create an educational program, accredited program for years that would compete with Harvard, Stanford, and Yale to be the best education on earth to better train the next generation of leaders and innovators. And I think we did a great job at Minerva towards that goal. I don't necessarily think, though, that that is where education in America is most broken. I think where education is most broken is instead providing educational opportunity, economic opportunity, and pathways for the middle 50. So these are people who would otherwise be going to community colleges. Community colleges have about a 10% six-year graduation rate from four-year schools uh, or going to for-profit colleges. So I just saw a stat, University of Phoenix had more people defaulting on their loans than graduating uh, in the last decade. So that was the problem area that I wanted to focus on. And so I actually, when I quit Minerva in December of 2016, my original goal was to build Minerva for community colleges to create a modern vocational training program to prepare people for these middle skill jobs. These like Trump University. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely different. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the goal is to create something that would take people who have a lot of potential and would place them into high opportunity professional pathways. So why do you do that? So I spent about a month working on that model and there were two big challenges. The first one was it's very hard from a business model perspective to do so in a scalable sense that boot camps, for example, which are probably the closest corollary to what I was originally working on, have a hard time scaling up to tens of thousands, let alone hundreds of thousands of people. So that was kind of one challenge. And then the second challenge was I didn't think it actually solved the problem that the consumer, the student has. That uh, as I talked to, you know, 50 to 100 college dropouts, none of them said to me, I want more education. They said, I want a great job. And education is a means to an end for people in this population. It is not the end in itself. So instead, I thought about how do I help them get that end? How do I help them get that great job that they believe that they deserve? They believe that they have the skills and abilities for, but employers might not give them the chance on today. And so that's why I moved from a kind of competency-based training approach in this vocational model to a competency-based hiring approach, changing the way that employers evaluate candidates to provide a 
um, accelerated pathway to middle-class jobs for people who might not have been previously getting them. And let's talk about just higher education before moving on to Strive. One is there's always this tension of how much should they focus on getting students jobs versus how much should they focus on sort of the the liberal arts or sort of the uh, immeasurable qualities that, that you get from a from a learning institution. What are your thoughts there, given that you, know, you spend a lot of time in Nerva, you spend time thinking about this as a problem space? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a great question. And I think that it depends on, in part, who the student is and what their goals are. So it should be self-directed? It should be... Yes, I think it should be some way self-directed. I think that, I think that students should have a greater of, uh, set of, of options. And for students who want to have a more professional path, they can take a a college or a college alternative that's going to move them quickly into that career. For people who want life of mind, who want the more broad intellectual foundation of arts education, they should have that approach as well. Right now, we have 4,000 colleges and universities in our country. And my guess is far more of an index on teaching people, you know, English and history and political science rather than teaching people pre-professional trades than would be the case if it was actually student-led and not faculty-led. You know, when you survey students about why they go to college, the top three reasons are increase my economic, uh, my employment out- outlook, um, earn more money afterwards, and to get a job. Basically three ways of saying the same thing. And so I think we probably should have a lot more schools that think about that path to employment than currently uh, obsess over it. Some people have said that if people follow the sort of the make school model of, uh, what's it called? Income? Uh, it's like, you know, income sharing agreements. Yeah, yeah. It's like, if my university had a stake in my future job potential, that they would be more aligned with me. Should universities be doing that? Should I be paying back my university based on how much I make? Yes. Uh, I think generally I like the concept, which is to align the incentives for the university around the student's success. There are obviously second-order effects of universities only becoming engineering schools and not right. having philosophy departments and classical, classical departments. I think those are valuable pursuits as well, but maybe not at the ratio that they're currently being balanced. I think there are other potential risks of income share agreements that aren't being as discussed as they're right now. People are generally very pro-income share agreement, but it's not entirely clear if it's going to be long-term in the best interest of all the students who take them out. Uh, that if you're charging a percent of future income, you might be able to overcharge because of it, because yeah. the students sense that it's risk-free, even though it's not. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is a, an interesting and you know slightly controversial topic, but I, mean, I think this is why some of the more innovative work being done around you know ISAs are actually being done in nonprofits, mm-hmm. potentially. And I think it's an interesting place to try to figure out where and how do VCs participate in that in theory having more data around outcomes and bringing that forward and getting rid of the 12 trillion dollars of debt is really good right but when you're doing it in a for-profit you could end up with incentives that aren't totally clear i think what we do know is that the problem is really there right like so the whole you know get give someone a pell grant which is you know an amazing thing that is offered in our country to go to university of phoenix and end up with debt and not be able to get a job like I think trying to fix that is is generally positive, and then it's just sort of I don't know like I, how do the how do the ISAs actually roll out, and it may be actually more interesting to roll them out in like boot camps and some of the more for profit directly connected to employer channels where you can have a faster feedback loop and where like the hope and the dream and the romance of college and you know kind of the practicality of like getting a job are a little bit more distinct. What have you followed Peter Thiel's argument, which I think is something along the lines of 
higher education is what church used to be. Promise you salvation if you pay us a lot of money. And two, how much do you agree or disagree with sort of the ethos of that sentiment? I think that he's getting at something essential, which is that going to college and getting a degree has become uh, like a religious truth in our country that we believe for so long that it's now broadly accepted and there's not a lot of kind of extensive discussion and debate on it. And I think that the, the reality is that a college degree as defined by spending, you know, four years, I mean, around four years and a certain amount of time sitting in a seat is a really expensive way to prepare people for the workforce if that's what they're trying to do. You know, I think that he's on to something in that statement. I don't, I probably don't go as far as he does, but I think he's on to something to say that we should critically reevaluate the value of a college education and try to understand if that's actually the best path for every person. That like, most Americans don't have four years of time and money when they're 18 years old to go and get a degree. And so if we make a degree a license to enter the middle class, then we are basically reinforcing the existing power system. And it's only wealthy people can get a degree, can get that middle class with that knowledge economy, AI-proof job. And so I think that I think another part of what, he t- what he's talking about that I think is really interesting is how do we find paths for people without degrees concurrently? I think he tried to do it at the Teal Fellowship going after the top 0.1%. But I think there's also a big opportunity in going after the middle 50% who life got in the way when they're 22 years old, they dropped out of college. And, you know, what's the professional path for those people? Like a lot of industries, sort of tech and tech platforms are allowing us to disaggregate supply chains in a way. And so it's sort of like college was a one-stop shop for friends, for learning, for like, you know, really terrible food at the cafeteria. (laughs) Uh, I think it's hard to like bunch those all together and figure out how to fit that with a consumer profile where right. you're delivering against the value that you're trying to offer them. And so he makes it sound, you know, somewhat negative, but I think there are also, you know, there are positive things that come out of it. And it's sort of part of what Minerva was trying to accomplish, which is there are these distinct moments in your life where you build friendships. Right. And I remember when I was trying to go back to, or when I was thinking about whether or not to stay at my job or go back to graduate school, somebody said to me, think about it this way. And I was in a lucky position to be able to have those two options. But they said, do you think you'll make two new lifelong friends in, in, in grad school? And if you do, it's probably worth it. How do you put a price on that? Yeah. How do you put a price on it? And, and um, I made lots of them and, and they're, you know, and there are ways to build community and build friendships. And it's a bigger topic around how we take our heads out of our screens and find new forms of religion. Like there's yeah. data that shows that people who are religious live longer and are more connected and all that sort of stuff. But that, kind of disaggregating that supply chain from saying you need a four-year degree and you need a certain number of credits and you need to show up in a lecture hall and, you know, and spend out 50 grand before you know if it's worth anything like that, that that's where the change really needs to happen. Are you religious? Um, I'm very spiritual, Eric. Thank yeah. for asking. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm religious. So, cool. you know, I'm a mom now and, and uh, religion brings family and heritage together. So, yeah. Totally. For those of you listening, Eric, turn on the lights and... <laughs> <laughs> It's now turning to I didn't know we were going to go yeah, It's a very different now. podcast. So this was not on the uh, initial list of questions. But to keep on. Yeah. Totally. Uh, how entrenched are we in the existing higher ed ecosystem? Are there going to be like 50 Minervas in the next five to 10 years? Or is Harvard and Stanford, I mean, is it really going to look the same with, with a couple experiments here and there? I hope that there are 50 Minervas in the right. next decade. Probably not. <laughs> uh, I think the challenge is, one, it's really expensive to build Minerva. You know, Minerva raised $50 yeah. million. And two, the accreditation system has a real stranglehold on innovation in that it 
order to access student loans, which is how you know the vast majority of students are paying for college, you need to be an accredited institution. And so, you know, Minerva had to go through an extensive process to get that accreditation. They partnered with the Graduate Institute. The bootcamp industry, which has been, I think, one of the biggest innovations in education in the last decade, decided to generally go outside of the accredited system. And that's why ISAs are so powerful, because students can't get loans, generally speaking, to pay for a bootcamp, and so they can pay for it off of future earnings. The bootcamp industry, though, is still like $300 million, and higher education is billions of dollars, right? right? So, you know, t- tens of millions, more and more of than that. So um, I would, I, I think that there are probably going to be few examples as big and bold as Minerva. And I think instead there's going to be a lot more boot camps that spring up. The question is, is the economic model of boot camp makes sense outside of software development? And that's what, when I was starting and I was thinking about building middle skills boot camps and thinking about building boot camps to train people to be, you know, office administrators and IT administrators and customer service people to like math didn't work out. Yep. Who knows what's going to happen? But my hope is that that we move away from student debt plus dart throwing, right? And right. so I think one of the powerful things about Strive and a number of other companies is moving to the employer pay model. Right. And when you move to the employer pay model around the ones that are most measurable, and it's not just measurable around sort of like immediate performance, but I think retention is one of the stats I'm super interested in that I don't think are well reported on where the cost of actually refilling a seat is totally. pretty significant. But as you get to that and retention maybe becomes more of a stat, then you actually may see employers support more of a broad-based community approach to education and just different ways of financing it because the, the student debt's what's really nefarious, right? And like and feeling kind of psychologically right. and economically under that burden is you know is, is something that I, I, I think will drive innovation. Totally. I think that's a great point talking about the employer component. I don't think we're probably gonna see 75 Minerva use, but I think we're gonna see 75 SAPU and eBayU and um, you know other companies that have a certain skill that they're looking to recruit people for, but they maybe don't have the applicant flow of a Google or a Facebook. And so they might say, listen, we're going to take people who don't have the education to do this job today, and we're going to do an in-house university to prepare them for these roles. And they're going to find them on Strive? And maybe they're going to find them on Strive, or they're going to find them, exactly, they're going to find them in some way that they can understand the person's potential and competencies and say it's worth me investing in this individual. Now, the question is exactly what Kara got to is retention. Like 30 years ago, this is what every employer did. Every employer would hire people and then spend a bunch of money training them because they knew that person was going to stick with me for 10, 20, 30 years. Now, as millennials switch jobs every two, three years, companies are wary of investing money in Eric's success so that Eric can take it from you know, village and go to, yep. you know, I won't bring up competitors, but I'm just saying, <laughs> yeah. so there's, there less, are no competitors. There are no competitors. Exactly. So I'm saying there's, abundance. Yeah, there's less of that apprenticeship, informal apprenticeship model. Um, and I think we might see a return of that formal apprenticeship model in the next kind of 10 years. And that's going to be more where like the innovation, I think in, in, in uh, future higher education could be. So when you were starting Strive, you've, uh, you know, and you were raising your round, you faced questions like, Similar to what you were asking in bootcamp, how is this? How is this scalable? Sometimes maybe you might have been compared to recruiting companies. People seem to be VCs seem to be negative on recruiting companies for whatever reason. Yeah, you face that, and then also, yeah, how is this a technology business when you yourself are not a machine learning engineer, and yet you raised over three million dollars from dozen plus amazing investors? Yeah, 
How'd you do that? What's the answer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I think the long-term vision for Strive is to be a competency-based marketplace. And marketplace will, and I think the technology at the core of the marketplace is assessment. So evaluating candidates and defining their competencies very clearly. Matching, matching the candidate competencies to the job description automatically. So the right person gets introduced to the right company and then providing personalized last mile training. So, you know, marketplaces are incredibly defensible, scalable businesses. They're hard to spin up, but once they're in place, you have network effects and there's kind of a natural moat. And our belief is that technology on the assessment side and on the training side will allow us to attract a large pool of candidates to give us an advantage in building out that marketplace approach. And is your secret sauce that you have a secret way of sourcing these candidates or that you have a secret way of assessing them once you've sourced like who's 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 good or is it that you you can train them to become good? What, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's the final two. I think it's assessing candidates and matching them based on competencies to companies that are looking for people of that ability, but they might not have found those candidates independently because the individual company doesn't have the ability to do that evaluation process. And then I think the second secret sauce, and this is what we're going to work on next, is doing that last mile upskilling. And my sense is if the value proposition to candidates can be, don't spend you know four years, $40,000 of debt, take a 40-minute assessment to get this middle-class job. And by the way, if you don't get it, then here's a series of free training courses that will help unlock right. these new job opportunities. That'll be a compelling enough value proposition that will be able to attract a lot of candidates to this platform. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes more of like a data science and matching challenge. So let's make it concrete. So you've taken someone who maybe didn't go to college yep. and maybe Uber passed on them because they answered an interview question wrong, but you think they would be a good fit for Uber because you understand something about this candidate Correct. that Uber hasn't yet understood and you help them you know, better answer this interview question. Or- exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe I'll say that the way that most companies hire today a six-second resume screen. So the average corporate recruiter looks at a resume for six seconds. And then about a 15 to 20-minute unstructured interview. So in doing so, they value certain characteristics that are not actually that predictive of success. So for the category of jobs we're looking at, entry-level knowledge economy jobs starting in sales, whether you have a college degree or not, is not predictive of success. In six seconds of looking at a resume, you look to see if they went to college, you look to see if you know the name of their previous employer. You maybe look around how many total years of experience they have, right? Years of experience, not going to be predictive of success for this level. And then you do a behavioral interview, and that's largely kind of like culture fit. Do you like the other person? Also not super predictive of success. So candidates apply through Strive. They do a cognitive assessment. They do a skill assessment. And then they do a structured interview looking at soft skills. And we can take a candidate's resume, translate it into what we call our competency scorecards. The company looking at the candidate can have much more useful data and understanding who they should be kind of bringing on site for final rounds. Yeah. And I mean, I'm just going to say, I mean, we probably looked at 10 or 15 companies doing something in competency-based training platforms, et cetera. And what really stood out as different um, in a bunch of different ways. One was going after the sales and customer, you know, kind of sales customer success vertical where you have intrinsic capabilities that don't match at all to credentials and where you can measure results pretty quickly in terms of like, how are they doing in the organization? How long did they stay? Are they performing? And that data set becomes pretty interesting. It's, you know, from, from the companies we've seen, it is really hard to do every step of the, like the assessment process, the sourcing, the assessment and then the last mile training. I actually went through it. Well, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And as did one of my partners, he still didn't, 
doesn't didn't tell me who actually scored better. Yeah, yeah, um, to the grave. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming it was me. No, for sure. <laughs> but um, but anyway, so that that was that was different. But I mean, it's like it's like everything over time. The data becomes really interesting and relevant. And if you get to that first order performance type stuff, then you can get to a cultural fit and all of these other things, so that you can create a new type of marketplace for candidates. You also invested in Rebecca Cantor's company. Yeah. Imbellus. Yeah, Imbellus. Imbellus and. Remind me, with their their first were starting a university, like helping replace the SAT or something, and then moved to to game based for how's it different than what we'll do? Re- Rebecca is is really tr- is solving a similar set of problems, but for a different type part of the market, right? And this is an the area, higher end. Yeah, I see the high, you know, the higher end, the knowledge worker, the you know, kind of um, creating these immersive environments where you can run, you know, you can look at the top performing analysts in a consulting class or you know a you know an accounting firm, and then have an environment where you're bringing no preconceived knowledge into it, and you're not just looking at what do they know, but it's more how do they think. And we're, there's a lot of kind of other elements that may play into their success. I will say, generally speaking, um, we we think this is an area where there are lots of opportunities I mean, to fund companies that will never compete. I mean, just, you know, none of us are funding recruiting companies, but there's $150 billion spent on external recruiting agencies. And then there's the retention and churn issue. So there's a lot of different ways to go in. And I'd say... Strive is very much in the middle skills, kind of family supporting income bucket, whereas Umbellus is targeting a totally different customer. What are other companies also in the space? Like we talked about Mission U earlier. We talked about SV Academy. How do you sort of think about the, the landscape there? So I think of Mission U and SV Academy as similar in that they're working with a slightly similar audience, and I'm not entirely sure the kind of profile candidate that they're working to train in place, but quite different in that their approach is not on competency-based evaluation. Uh, instead, it's on more traditional skill development, right? So they are trying to, in the, in the case of SV Academy, they're trying to be an add-on to a traditional university. In the case of Mission U, they're trying to replace a traditional university. I think that the company that I would say we're most similar to in process currently might be more like Triple Byte. Triple Byte, Triple Byte is trying to implement like talent arbitrage for engineers that most companies in Silicon Valley hiring look at a resume and say, oh, this guy went to MIT. Awesome. I want to talk to him. Or, oh, this guy worked at Google. Awesome. I want to talk to him. There's tons of amazing engineers who went to Kalamazoo College and worked at uh, you know startup in Chicago that you've never heard of before and they don't make it past the initial screen. And so TripleByte is saying, we're going to do this amazing evaluation process. We're going to define both the quality and the type of the engineer. And then we're going to match them with a startup that's looking for that type and quality. And their secret sauce is that they're able to source this pool of candidates that the existing companies aren't valuing properly. Um, so I think from a ethos perspective. Yeah, from an ethos perspective, that is very similar. We're talking about the middle skills. Middle skills is about 40% of the American economy. Think customer service, sales, IT, office administration, whereas they're going after high-end tech jobs. I think maybe going back to your comment about Mission U and SV Academy, I would put them also in the bucket of like, I hope there's 10 Mission U's and I hope there's 10 SV Academies and we need more of this general innovation in the space. I am uncertain how they will scale, that I see them running up against the same problems that the dev boot camps and the, you know, the, the hack reactors and app academies of the world have that if it's successful, you're going to have a lot more people doing something very similar. And it's not obvious that there's a big moat unless you have 
some proprietary curriculum and pedagogy, which or brand or and then or brand. And I think they would argue yeah. we're developing our brand and we're going to be able to attract students for this. And so I think that's the question: like, can they build a brand faster right. than other people can copy the foundational approach? And I imagine you've passed on all of these, <laughs> and not specifically, but just the space of like people trying to make new new universities. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think we've, we've not looked at everything, but we've looked at a right. lot. Um, and um, so, yeah, I mean, we've looked at a lot of different things. Uh, you mentioned earlier you wouldn't invest in a recruiting company. Why are so VC uh, so down on recruiting companies, and yet why are so many people starting them? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I let me think about how to answer that. I think about the users on each side. Um, when when you think of you know when you think about the future of work, like the way you know the way work should play out to have a sustainable economy, right, is that you actually are creating good value on both sides for the employee and the player. There's probably a broader question around how empowered the employee is in this universe. And and so I would say recruiting as an industry is old and antiquated. And sort of there are these many multi-billion dollar companies, Kelly, Manpower, well, who am I missing? Adeco. Adeco. And there, there hasn't, there really hasn't been much innovation there in, you know, in decades. It's like warm bodies and databases and where the pricing model is such that they make money by having you hold on to temp for a long time and grossing it up. And the longer you keep someone, the more incentive you have to really let them go so that your, your bill doesn't mount. And so it's more of just, I think, there's tons of inefficient dollars being sent, sent back there where employees aren't finding, you know, kind of, you know, family supporting incomes that make them happy. Um, and, uh, and where employers are spending lots of money and time to get the wrong people in the wrong job. So I think from that standpoint, we're all looking to do something different, but the idea, like, you know, I think one thing that I think about a lot is in life, the two things, like assuming, you know, the two, the two most significant decisions you make are what am I going to do and who might I spend my life with romantically? And it's a bit random, right? Yep. It's sort of like for both of them. And so, and so there's a ton of wasted dollars in between both of those things. Right now we're just talking about one of them. And so like, how do you deploy that more efficiently to have happy constituents on both sides? So employees are in the job liking the job, want to be retrained in that job or move around overtly and companies are retaining them, making money and investing in like profitable growth engines. Because I haven't probably have you personally invested in any more companies that have tried to do either of the two? Worker dating? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was involved in getting Tinder going in the early yes, days, but that was a bit of an accident. Yeah, I mean, you know, as a firm and personally, I'd say, you know, a third of my portfolio are probably marketplace businesses. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know, the whole gig economy yep. and trying to figure out how to have, I mean, I think this whole spectrum um, of hobbies to work yep. is pretty interesting. Um, you know, as you get into a whole other topic around incentive structures and much of what's fascinating the VC world right now, blockchain and the like. And I do think there's a spectrum from intrinsic to extrinsic and right. the more you can, you know, kind of align passion and mission and purpose and intrinsic with getting paid for it, you know, kind of the better. So, I mean, a lot of that in terms of marketplaces, um, and I could go into a bunch of examples. Well, are you looking at any blockchain related? It's not, it's not a tech podcast. Without blockchain. Um, I mean, God, I'd have to give back my VC credentials right. if totally. I wasn't looking at blockchain. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm reading and studying and learning and meeting d- deeply. I would say I'm, I'm pretty interested in blockchain as it applies applies to the themes and theses where I'm spending the most time. Right. So looking at things related to 
work and incentives and employment verification and things of that nature. Um, I think it's really interesting from an incentive standpoint, you know, things around media, tracking IP. I think it's really interesting from an incentive standpoint because we're so enamored with its potential right now that we look at putting a dollar incentive in people's hands as a primary motivator. Whereas I definitely think the motivator is the combination of what you're naturally doing intrinsically, something that could be a hobby where then you also are compensated for it. I do think it's really relevant to the future of work because every form of constituent is changing. And so like shareholders, managers, employees, like all of those definitions are going to be different over the next coming decade. And that has some pretty significant implications. Big topic we haven't yet discussed is AI and automation as it relates to jobs, whether there'll be so where do you guys stand in terms of whether there will be massive structural unemployment or people have jobs that will just look different? And how do you think about that relative to you, Kara, as an investor? And will you as you know, building a competency-based business? The extremes of what could happen with AI, I think, are scary to people. Either the true believers who believe that only good will come from AI and automation and new jobs will emerge, and those who want to kind of like stick their head in the sand and, and sort of say, like, let's stop it and go back to an agrarian world. And I just sort of think of it as like, let's get specific, right? And let's look at the next step up the mountain. And we've always, you know, I mean, go back through all the history analogies everyone's given us, but 300 years ago, we were like, We'd be doing this podcast in candlelight and shouting at each other and riding our horses home. And so um, I look at it more specifically. Like, yes, we've lost 6 million manufacturing jobs. But, you know, like we have a company called ThreadUp. You know, we're investing in a company called ThreadUp, for example, that is adding jobs in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, which used to be a big manufacturing hub for their huge distribution center where they're doing a ton of re-commerce. And it's one of, so, that, so, and then you have, you know, 2 million Etsy and Amazon sellers and you have... You know, what we've lost in manufacturing, we're gaining in, in, in equal, if not larger volumes in terms of care and healthcare workers. So I think we get more specific around how we smooth out where and what employment is in different regions. Um, and a lot of that comes down to a lot of stuff we're talking about training, retraining. Some of it comes down to labels, right? So healthcare, if there are six, seven, 10 million jobs being created, well, like we call them nurses and nurse is thought of as a female job. You know, uh, someone brought this up recently. If we just called it a medic, which is what you call it in the army, and that is a family supporting income, would you have huge new pools of men coming into that job because we have this historic label mm-hmm. that people can't identify with? So I think we just have to get specific and then kind of figure out how to smooth that out across, you know, our sovereign nation if we aren't all ruled by a blockchain contract. <laughs> Uh, and there's a lot of truth in what Kara just said. I also think this is not the first time that we've dealt with fears over automation. I think it was under LBJ, they had a commission on the future of work because they were worried that there were machines that had the ability to complete the job of high school grads. And 20% of the American economy was agricultural. 20% of the American labor force at that time were in agriculture. And they're like, oh my gosh, like, you know, a fifth of our economy is going to disappear. And those jobs did disappear, but better jobs took their places, right? And, you know, we had ATMs and everything. Like, oh my gosh, let's have all the bank tellers. And like the bank tell- there's now more bank tellers. And the bank tellers are more interesting things. And so I think history has shown that the technological advances have, yes, eliminated some jobs. They've also created a new category and class of job that are generally more creative, less repetitive. And the big question is, do we have the educational system to prepare people for those more creative jobs. Now, the X factor in this is in you know the 50s, the machines replaced a high school worker. 
with AI, it could replace not only a college grad, it could replace the best college grad. Mm-hmm. And so there is a little bit of uncertainty about how super intelligent super intelligence is and what categories of jobs that then could replace that we've never even thought about AI replacing before. Uh, and I think we're starting to see that in the medical profession. You see uh, uh, AI being able to diagnose diseases faster, more accurately than humans can. And you would have thought that somebody who's a doctor would be immune to that. So I think kind of building on Kara's point, we're going to have to be pretty specific about the areas that artificial intelligence, that robotics automation are better to replace. And then think about some combination of safety net plus retraining and replacement for those people. And, and the, I mean, like just that example, right? Like one in five deaths in the country come from a medical misdiagnosis. And you have these, you know, super brain medical doctors that are systems thinkers, but like it's very isolated, independent, and then the consumer doesn't know how to assess that skill, right? So um, yet yeah, the flip side is, you know, we're, we're still pretty far away from empathy and making, you know, like and guiding people to positions. And I, this uh, little graphic I think I, I found and tweeted a month or two ago. I don't know if you saw it, but it was it was walking through all the different kinds of new jobs that would emerge. And it was carbon finder, you know, personal trainer, motivate, fitness motivator, yeah. okay. but, but also like care and empathy. And like yeah. the, you know, as care, elder care, child care kind of become ever more important, more people going into it, like the emotional elements of it are both rewarding and not being done yet. By Have you guys yet done anything yet in elder care or child care? Yes. Hold on. God, you're really quizzing me on the portfolio. <laughs> That's okay. We can, we can pass it. Um, yeah, well, I mean, we've done, we have done stuff in um, child care, hot skip drive, which I mentioned yep. before. We've looked at quite a bit at elder care. And, I, and I, I, I think elder care is interesting as you look at future of work in that um, I think one of the insights that's kind of popping up is um, – that the idea of retirement is kind of going away and kind of needs to go away. I'm like, I just, my grandmother was, was a, a demographer and actually like one of the first female statisticians to graduate from Columbia. But she, um, you know, so we grew up talking about replacement rate and we are like, we have a replacement rate issue emerging. So we actually need to figure out how to kind of move away from a concept of retirement and figure out how to get the grain population to work and be more mobile. Anyway, we're looking, we, we are looking interestingly in LA at a bunch of different companies, like even robotics companies that where robots don't have the same dexterity as human beings, but they, they can do kind of, you know, crude movements very easily, which are like an assist for an aging person in the home. So they don't have to leave their home and can stay in their home. Yep. So we've done stuff and we, you know, I think it's done generally. Um, that time on. I think that the, to kind of Kara's comment a little bit ago, uh, you know, the, f- the future of work is emotional labor and, you know, sales that we're focused on. One of the reasons we decided to focus on sales was because it's emotional labor. It's about person-to-person connections. It's going to be hard to automate or outsource or replace a lot of that work that is relationship-based. I think that elder care is a huge part of the economy. I mean, the two, two of the biggest demographic trends are, one, baby boomers retire, you know, baby boomers yep. getting older and thinking about retiring, and then they're... You know, even one generation above that living until they're 100. And so it's like we need the 70-year-olds to somehow work for the 90-year-olds. Mm-hmm. The challenge is those elder care jobs are not good jobs, right? Like I, when I was working on Strive and deciding to focus on sales, I thought for a while about doing uh, home health care aids because that's such a huge growing part of our economy. But those are $12 an hour on your feet, nine hours a day, 
Those are often unpaid work because it's you're doing family care. Uh, so those are not right now defined as middle class roles. And it could be that we decide there's a national need for this and we mandate, you know, probably not generally in favor of doing like job specific uh, mandates. You let the free market decide how much to pay for these roles. But um, I think that's going to be a huge class of jobs in the future that we'll need to find people for. What? By the way, one other area that was just an insight for me, when I, I worked at IAC for um, seven years, and one of the business units I worked closely with was um, uh, one called Home Advisor, which is now a publicly traded company on its own. And Home, home advisor places, you know, serve, like service professionals in the home, right? So like your AV guy, your plumber, your, I should say your AV guy or girl, yes. your plumber, your, the, the great business, but a really shrinking supply of labor there. And so when I caught up with one of my own colleagues a couple of years ago, he said like, we are actually actively looking at how do we invest in education solutions to train the next level of suppliers so that we have plumbers and welders and AV experts. And so like, that's, a you know, there, that's another big HVAC installers. It's another big pocket of labor. Um, and I think really it's just like going beyond the headlines, right? Like we can talk, we can spend a whole election talking about coal miners and there's only 50,000 coal miners in the United States, but there are 3 million truck drivers and totally. maybe eight or 10 million people in total affected by truck driving becoming automated. And that's a real thing. We should talk right. about it. And speaking of that, where do you guys stand on universal basic income versus like earned income tax credits versus any other? I would say I'm still a student of universal basic income. I think from everything I've learned and read thus far, it's pretty interesting. I think, again, we got to kind of like figure out how to separate the economic from the purpose. But it's, you know, it seems to be like experiments have been run for a long time, but they're just experiments. So I'm, <clears throat> but you know, Nixon ran experiments and yeah. I don't know that. People know that, and it showed that there was, you know, there was no correlation between, you know, universal basic income, you know, kind of check and any sort of change in terms of desire to work and productivity and creativity. So instinctually, it feels like there's a, it's an efficient way to support a welfare state, but I am so early in learning. Um, and, I, you know, I think there's cool, there's some really interesting things going on, like the mayor of Stockton. I don't know if you yeah. follow him at all, but 27-year-old mayor, you know, a town that's going through a lot of changes with um, a lot of, you know, kind of income issues and inequality and they're rolling out experiment right now. So I think you'll start to see a lot more innovation on a local level and hopefully we can figure out how to bring market forces and the promise of our welfare state together. Yeah. I think that with universal like basic income, there will be a uncertainty around like human identity in a world of UBI and that and I think this might actually be unique to America. Like I think the American, like the Protestant work ethic, people define themselves right. through their labor. A lot of people define themselves through their labor. And that's how they feel valued in the home because they're able to provide for their family. And so there's a question of if everybody is getting, you know, sustenance that they're getting paid by the government, how will they define themselves? And will that be through art? Will that be through uh, uh, care, through community involvement? Uh, I think Kara's right that the existing studies are, saying that when people, you give people guaranteed income, they don't stop working. They maybe have less anxiety about it. They might work a slightly different hours. They might go back to school for more education, but they continue to work. I think that if we had 20% structural unemployment in America and we had UBI, there probably just wouldn't be that much work of a traditional sense for these people to do. So we would have to start defining things that we don't define as work today as work. Yeah, to allow people to have that identity. And I mean, that goes back to like the very original question, which is, is, is raising children work? Yeah. It's the hardest work that, you know, probably most of us do. And so, you know, I think we, we, we have this definition of work of uh, being associated with pay, but I mean, it really is 
you know, exerting some sort of mental or physical effort to get to an outcome. And so, you know, defining it in a way that is broader, I think allows us um, to actually maybe reap greater rewards, right? Educate our kids and create new types of jobs that may be off in the distant future that, you know, you don't have the time to, to consider when you're working three shifts and, you know, sleeping four hours a night. I'll ask you as well. Sure. Because I feel like you probably <laughs> thought a lot about UBI. This is an area where I have, like, the expertise of reading 10 articles about it, probably less than you do. So I'm oh, curious about Probably 20 articles. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like you're probably deeper in. So what's... Uh... If you imagine a world where a truck driver is making 70 or 80K and now loses his job to automation and now has to take, you know, his best drive and now gets 50K or 60K... And you imagine a world where now he gets or she gets, you know, 15K to help sort of you make up for the offset. That sort of, that sort of makes sense or, or earn income tax credit, which to my understanding, or like jobs where, where we basically top up, you know, uh, some care jobs or, or jobs that we really want people to be doing and that, that are important. Those sort of things in isolation seem to make sense. The logistical questions of where does the money come from or where is it taken from, from other things. But I think I'm excited about it. And there's, like lots of people, like on all sides of the fence, like, you know, libertarians, conservatives, Democrats are excited about it for different reasons. So it seems like it is an idea that will continue to promulgate. I think the, the question I have, where do people find meaning in a world in which they're not working in the way that we traditionally understand? And Yuval Harari's cynical take is, although it's not cynical for him, but is VR and drugs. And so the more optimistic Mark Andreessen's take is, Art, poetry, and um, new types of education, and new like religious communities or, or things like that. And I don't know; it's going to be an interesting, interesting time. But I definitely think something like that is coming at, at some point. Yeah, I think any time that there's an idea that doesn't fit on a traditional political axis, it's like worth yeah. looking for a little, looking at a little bit longer. I think that's what's interesting about you. Got for me, I was originally skeptical of it. I think that a lot of the research on, I think Give Directly is the name of the nonprofit that runs pilots where people donate money directly to people yep. in, in poor countries so that they can determine what to do with the aid money rather than having kind of like a central authority dictate. And those pilots have been very effective and I think UBI has kind of a similar domestic promise for that. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, it's, again, I, 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 I feel like I'm the third most knowledgeable person <laughs> in a room with three people on UBI, but... Um, uh, I mean, it is interesting in Stockton, they're taking, they're doing it with charitable donations. And so, you know, if you've run an internet brand that's been around for 10 years, you know how bureaucratic that becomes. And, and so like, if you think about, you know, kind of the well, the, you know, welfare and benefits, if you can take pools of capital that are risk of and, you know, kind of remove middlemen and push it all the way through, like it's, it should be pretty powerful to see what we learn. And I, I also think that, I mean, it's interesting as you guys are talking, just thinking about, you know, the heritage of our country and our Protestant work ethic, I, I think we, we definitely sort of feel like, you know, as a, as a country, we talk a lot about just like throwing hours at problems yeah. and to the detriment of our sleep, of our health, of our family, of all of these different things. Um, and so mental health is becoming a real issue in ways that, you know, are particularly prevalent this week. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know who of the many thinkers are right, but friendship, community, all the things that catalyze it, health, sleep, these are things that we're probably, none of us are doing in the right amounts now. Um, yeah. Maybe we get it right, it gives us a chance to rethink and it. Have you found any businesses that are <clears throat> doing uh, interesting things at the intersection of community, friendship, like common is something that comes to mind, like co-living yeah. is something that comes to mind? I, I actually have. I mean, I think, you know, I have the great fortune of, you know, being one of the few women in the industry. And so I get the chance to meet with a 
ton of fantastic female founders as well. And there are a lot of kind of what female forward co-working, co-living businesses that are emerging that are like some version of WeWork, um, but maybe, you know, and so when I, when I look at those businesses and not all of them are all female, it's sort of like, you know, the idea of if you get 30 or 40% diversity in a room, how does that change the way you communicate and learn and interact? And so I actually think there's a lot of interesting early stage businesses emerging there. I've probably seen three or four or five of them in the last three months. Um, and I'm personally just on a personal level, really activated on this topic of, you know, kind of how do we change the types of people getting funded and diversity and cap tables um, with lots of different kinds of thinkers from different, you know, backgrounds, genders, geographies, ethnicities. And so I'm just doing a lot on a personal level that maybe not directly related to this, but like just last night, um, I partnered up with a business that's creating talking circles in people's homes that aren't directly related to their industry. And so, and they do it specifically for sort of mid-level or rising women in their industry. And so I had 20 women in my home and my kids came down and we talked about stuff. And so, I mean, it's pretty cool. it's, it's not the- necessarily something that you, I'd fund right. Right? as a VC who needs to hit a certain return profile, but those are the kinds of models that will emerge and, if, you know, and, and are, are really interesting things happening around that right now. It's interesting. I mean, I have this friend in New York who is, uh, his name is Jesse Israel and he has this thing called Big Quiet. Have you heard of this? Uh-huh. It's sort of like a meditation concert. He brings like, you know, I think now they're like renting out Madison Square Garden, like thousands of people together to meditate at the same time. And he's sort of, those are capstone events, but he has weekly sort of talking circles. I think maybe like a couple dozen throughout the city. Silent um, circles or talk? Uh, the Big Quiet <laughs> is silent, but the circles are combined meditation plus like talking about you know, issues that people are facing in the community and he's trying to make it sort of without sort of woo around it, sort of modern, you know, uh, religion, like community. He's not calling it religion, but what it, the purpose it served in terms of a place for people to come every week. And I guess I wonder, like Christianity is a huge business. <laughs> like why, what would, what is it, what would need to be true for it to be interesting? Yeah, I mean, I have a couple of quick thoughts. One, I think food is becoming religion. I yeah. think the way people, particularly coastal cities, connect to whatever their profile of eating is, right? You know, I mean, if you know anyone on Whole30, yeah. they're probably driving you insane, and I was that person just recently. But but, but I, I actually, um, yeah, I think new forms of religion are emerging in yeah. that way. Fitness, um, too. Uh, yeah, well, I think it's sort of like the fitness, the eating, it's all well, kind of, it's, it is all going together. Um, and I've even yeah. spoken to my religious officials about this. Like, cool. you know, if you look at like all the dietary restrictions, for example, that come out of being kosher, you know, reform interpretation of that is not, is not necessarily that you shouldn't eat pig or you shouldn't eat lobster, but it was bringing sort of an awareness and appreciation um, and a communal moment to your food um, to just be present and be connected to it. And I think if you kind of like pay that forward, do whole 30 or gluten-free or vegan, there's a similar sort of religious ethos to it. Yep. Um, but I would say, you know, I'll say this right now. I mean, if you look at like, particularly for what's happening with women in tech and women in venture, and you look at a lot of the just natural talking circles that have popped up. So Cheryl Sandberg has yep. her dinners, which are renowned and, we have different ones in LA. I think a lot of the movements like Time's Up and um, a lot of the women in venture yeah. coming together are sort of catalyzing that on a totally. more global scale. And I think, I actually think, you know, I keep trying to find someone to start this business, um, not necessarily be venture funded, right. but you could just have a platform where you allow people to self-organize around yeah. doing sort of these what meetup used to be or something. Yeah. 
Yeah, but they're in, come into the home and do things. Right. I mean, this is, you know, this is still like the basic way we all connect. I hope <laughs> Have you seen any of that? I feel like there's somebody at the cutting end. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think what Jesse's doing is amazing. And he sort of asked himself, is this, is, does this become a technology business? Or people were like, no, 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 just, just do, do this. Do get 50, like, just keep... It's growing organically. People are volunteering. What do you and what is it you do exactly? You go meditate together. It's a combination of meditation and then there's a speaker group conversation around you know things like mental health or yeah. things like you know when Me Too is coming to like relationships like how, you know um, just sort of pressing issues that you wouldn't have the space to talk about. Otherwise. I feel like WeWork is yeah. going to be in some ways the backbone of that type of opportunity and that they have these spaces that are used from nine to six. Yeah. And then what happens every day from six to nine p.m. Yeah. Right, and that they could be the anchor of building these types of local communities around areas of shared interest. Like I do think that our generation craves that in-person interaction, and like there's a reason that concerts and festivals have become right. so popular among millennials is it's the you know it's the anti Snapchat in a way mm-hmm. or the anti social media that you're like out in the world doing something uh, yeah. unplugged. So I think the business version of it would probably be the real estate play for people right. to gather together. Yeah, it's interesting. You guys just reminded me. So I'm I'm doing this thing right now, which is it's like 12 women on a text message. Some of us who knew each other, some of who didn't, and we're doing something. We're doing 300 leg lift squats, crunches, um, push ups a day. When you're done, you text in your 300. And and the person Sounds who asked <laughs> the person who asked us to do it didn't you know pitch it as a startup though maybe it is it's just sort of like I do this with my buddies and it's really cool and it connects us and um, now everyone's sending around like Jackie Joyner Percy inspiration and hey listen to this Cat Stevens song while you're doing your lunges which maybe tells you the age of the group but <laughs> but I, I, there's, I think that those experiments are um, pretty interesting and like where real community emerges. Last question, sort of wrap it all together, Kara, uh, you have two kids. Three kids? Three kids. Will their college experience be radically different from, say, Will and mine? And what do you think about, uh, will their, you know, first job after college be radically different or is not yet, not yet on that timetable? Um, yeah, I think my kids may never have a license. I think my kids will hopefully do something. Driver's license. Driver's license. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) I hope I have the open mind that I plan to have and to allow them to do a lot of things in a very different way. I think it'd be super healthy to, um, even if things are the same, go do a gap year. Um, one piece of advice I heard that I loved was tell your kids to start a business and just support themselves entirely for the first year out starting their own business and they'll learn more about what they love and they don't love. Right. Um, we're fortunate to have options to even talk about these things, but for sure. But look, I'm not, you know, and I'm really optimistic that we'll find, we'll find, um, you know, different paths for, for my kids. And I, I actually also hope that they don't spend all their life with their head in their phone. I think mental yeah. health is becoming a real thing while they're kind of jumping into the phone and that they're going to be hopefully mentally healthy with yeah. the technology. Well, you asked me one other thing. Is it their job or is it, is it your first job after college? First job after college, drone racer. Drone racer. Drone racer. I'm going to go with that. Wow. I like it. Uh, guys, it's been a, yeah, this has been a fantastic, no pressure kids. <laughs> this has been a fantastic episode. Uh, any last words? Any last words? You know, well, thank find, thank you for having us. This, is, uh, this, this has awesome. been fantastic. Thanks for having us. And we can check out Strive where? StriveTalent.com. We are hiring. So if you or anybody you know are looking, uh, we would love to talk. It's awesome. awesome. Cool. Thank you both. Thank you.